Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Scran, the podcast passionate about Scotland's food and drink. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and on this episode, I head off foraging with Rupert Waits, one half of Buck and Birch. After discovering what's available in Scotland over the seasons, with a particular focus on autumn, we headed back to the Buck and Birch tasting room, where we were joined by Tom Chisholm, and the two discussed how they went from pop-up forage dinners to inadvertently becoming part of the drinks industry. Good morning, good afternoon. Good morning, yes. So we're going to go foraging in Butterdean Woods. Absolutely, yeah. We are uh, here just not far from uh, from where we do our uh, our drinks making. Uh, this is a very typical kind of place you might find, uh, community woodland, beautiful place. You can hear the birds singing, the sun's out, it's fresh, it's beautiful. I'm calling it late summer. Yeah, we're just going to try and show you guys how, uh, you know, this big, beautiful green wall behind us is full of just joy and wonder and tasty stuff. Looking forward to it, because my, my knowledge is pretty much brambles at this time of year. Brambles, well you can see here in the car park, everybody knows brambles. Um, brilliant place for people to start. Everybody should go out with their kids and pick brambles, make bramble jelly. Uh, we do a few other things with brambles. Uh, we make bramble tip wine, bramble wine, we pickle brambles, we make nettle bramble leaf tea. Um, but yeah, that is a, it's a great, great place to start. Will we go and have a look at some brambles? And eat some brambles? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you can literally start filling your boots here. These are great. In amongst the brambles, you'll see already we've got this uh, this lovely this is um, like sticky willow, mm-hmm. cleavers. So a lot of people know this, you know, you throw it on each other as children and have lots of fun with it. Pick it out my dog. Pick it out the dog, <laughs> definitely. I think this is where Velcro was invented, you know? It was, um, but this time of year, if you're, if you're looking for some, some coffee, it's the same family as the coffee plant. Um, and you can take the seeds and you could roast the seeds, grind them up and make coffee. Beautiful wow. stuff. So we put that in our uh, in our coffee martana. What's your coffee martana? Is that a drink? So as a drink, yeah, we make um, cocktails, uh, wild based cocktails, um, and that's a very popular one. So it's birch caramel spirit, cleaver coffee, and uh, yeah, it's very very tasty. So at home, if you did get some of the cleaver stuff. How easy is it to roast it and make the coffee? Would you just stick it in like a, how would you do that? I mean, it's really just a matter of finding, finding oh. the you see here, they'll grow in big mats on the fences and across walls and on your brambles. And um, it's taking it and, and just taking the time to pick the seeds out mm-hmm. um, and just literally roast them on a tray, just dry mm-hmm. roast them, grind them up in a coffee grinder or pestle and mortar and, and use a cafetiere. Nice, because I should say it looks, I would, to, the, to someone who doesn't know, I'd say that looks a bit dead. So it's like, what would have been green? Sticky willows is now kind of brown and because yeah. in the spring up. the young sticky willow is it tastes of peas so you can eat the young shoots uh, but if you take the young shoots and put them in water overnight um, and then strain it out the next day and just drink the water it's a really really good I think it's a lymphatic tonic um, and it regulates the metabolism and it tastes kind of like green banana and mango it's oh, incredible nice. yeah so it's like this weird exotic flavour 
coming out of springtime Scotland that by winter becomes coffee, <laughs> you know? So it's this wonderful transformation. It's like elderberry, goes from elderflower, mm -hmm. which is this wonderful airy fairy kind of, um, you know, muscat grape kind of flavor. And then by the time it gets to the berry, which is now, it's, uh, it's like port, you know, it's like dark, dark. They're yeah. total opposites from the same plant. Elderberry is very good for you, yeah. It's, it's you know, especially everyone talks about um, their immune system at the moment. It is a great immune booster. And it's got chemicals in it, I think, that coat the mucous membranes of cells. So it stops viral attachment. Um, so as a preventative, we recommend everybody drinks a bottle of elder probably every day. <laughs> but yeah, it's really, really good for you. I think Hippocrates, Hippocrates said, uh, you know, if you have elder in your medicine chest, you need little else. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's a gift, really. But everything, it, it's, it's, once you start looking, once you lift the green veil and you, you stop to look, we've not even got left the car park. And we've got nettles here. And at the moment they're past eating, but the seeds, the seeds are very good for you. You could put them in a granola, you could make tea from them. They give you a real boost of energy. We've got sycamore, you can tap the sycamore, a bit like uh, maple syrup you'll get from that. Um, brambles, you know, these young shoots, you could eat those as a vegetable. Um, and on and on it goes, you know, it's... Uh, it's endlessly giving and there's always something new to discover. And so for anybody like starting out, so say you know, you're going for a walk with your dog or you're just going for a wander this autumn, are there any sort of hard and fast rules that you would say for foraging? I mean, the hard and fast rules are, legally speaking, you know, don't dig anything up, um, for example. Don't take everything that you see somewhere. You've got to share it with uh, all the animals and the other people. And don't eat anything you're not 100% sure about. Don't do identification on Facebook. Go steady. Go out with a, an experienced forager. There are lots of them about. Um, you know, we're going to start doing courses soon. Um, but just, just you know, start with brambles. You really can't go wrong with brambles. Mm -hmm. um, so this is the fireweed here. So at the moment, it's doing its, um, its funny thing. They call it firewood, I think, because it comes up first after a fire in the Yukon. It's the national fire of the Yukon. Um, and what its job seems to be in nature is that once the forest has been burned to the ground, as it happens naturally, you know, this will be the first thing that comes up and it makes new soil really quickly. So in the bomb sites in London, I think, you know, um, back in the day, this was the first thing that comes up. It's almost guaranteed that if you just dug a hole in the ground somewhere, anywhere in Britain, one of the first things that would cover the earth would be fireweed. And this makes the tea, it makes a beautiful cordial from the flowers. I think it's just beautiful and gardeners hate them. Mm -hmm. But we serve the shoots when they're young, so when they're about this high, you can pick the shoot and peel it and use it like asparagus. So it's just got this constant, constant use. And Brilliant. Is this, would it have pink flowers? Is this this is the pink flower, yeah. Right. And I think uh, the birds love to take the seed. And actually people could use the seed as um, tinder to make new fire. So it's very, very dry. And um, birds like love to line their nests, you know. So very often you find a little wren's nest and it'll be very cosy because of these. But generally just tread really carefully. Um, and when you're 100% certain, not 99% certain, you know, then enjoy what you've found. But I think it's all about becoming familiar. You know, it's, it's about building up your confidence and saying, well, I got that one right. And, you know, rowing is very difficult to get wrong. Acorns are very difficult to get wrong. You know, you can't really go wrong brambles, fireweed, 
Um, yeah, there are more plants that will kill you than mushrooms in Britain. Oh, really? Yeah, and people will quite rightly tell you to be very wary of mushrooms. Um, but again, it's like start with a chanterelle, you know, and once you get your eye in and you start noticing the differences in the mushrooms and identifying them and spending some time with them, it's all about building up, I think, a relationship with the plants so that you become, essentially become intimate. You know, you, you the, the final stage being that they, they become part of you, you know. But because most people see this as a whole, they see it as a, as a green thing to take a picture of and it's sort of two-dimensional, you know, but the real joy comes when you start grabbing things and you'll never go real wrong grabbing something, you know, and just smelling it and thinking, I wonder what that is. And then you can maybe look it up and I'm just taking it step by step. As Monica would always say, you know, my friend Monica is, you know, do you know the difference between uh, an iceberg lettuce and a savoy cabbage, for example? And everyone will say, of course I know the difference. But they both look and would describe the same. Mm -hmm. But everybody knows the difference because you're familiar with them both. And I think it's the same. You just, once you get your eye in, you start noticing the differences, you start finding it easier to identify things. And then you can really just get going and exploring. Rupert and I walked further into the woods on the hunt for foraging treats, including mushrooms. I mean, chanterelles, girol, I think the, the French call them. They're beautiful, they're really beautiful, apricot-coloured mushrooms. And they'll be popping up just now. I think they're almost at the end of their, uh, their season. But they're just a real gift. And in woods like this, you'll be able to find um, little funnel-shaped uh, apricot-coloured fungi. And there's two types. There is a false chanterelle. And the false chanterelle isn't very deadly, but it's not as tasty as the chanterelle. Um, but they're a real good starting point for fungi hunters. Very rewarding. And have you, so you said everyone's searching for them just now, have you found that as people have become more into foraging, it's become harder for you guys who do it professionally and you need I, to do it for your work? Yeah, it's twofold. I think one, there is a great upkeep in, in people um, from Britain who are just becoming interested again in mushroom hunting. And obviously there's a lot of people from, from abroad who have it still in their culture, so particularly Eastern European. Uh, my wife's from, from Thailand and her and all her friends are out all the time now collecting fungi. So there's just a lot more competition for the spots, you know, which I think is a great thing because it, it just shows that people are getting out and making use of, of the woods, you know. So we're standing here now and I can see round berries, which is interesting. I didn't know you could end with them because obviously you think red danger, but they're fine. They're very, very, very bitter, you know. Um, but if you, you know, we, we blend them in, in vodka and spit it essentially and then and, and put them through a, a filter and then you get the fruitiness without the bitterness and we use that in our um, round cocktail uh, which is sort of round shoots which are marzipan flavoured and it's got that lovely sharp fruity flavour of the berries and, and we also use the blossom and a lot of people make jelly out of it, you know but for me the real joy are the, the shoots and the flower buds you get those when they're, when they're young um, in the springtime and just immerse them in some vodka or you can immerse them in milk and you just get this beautiful almond flavour uh, which I think is great it's a amaretto, you know Nice, so do you find that so we've just said, you know, the whole year round you can sort of see the life cycle of plants and, and take things from them but you mentioned quite often that, you know, the young shoots are leaves and then now the berries and stuff so is the best time to go foraging and pick things the spring and the autumn is there not really much in the summer? There are, yeah, I mean, I think the, there are two gluts really, like everything comes up in spring and it's all about the shoots and the flowers and then in the summer there's a sort of a lull almost, um, 
where there's less going on, you know. Um, it, so it's more about leaves and it's about flower shoots and spikes and starting to get the fruits. And in the autumn, it's kind of like, it's all go. It's, there's fungi going everywhere. There's all the berries. There's, you know, it's the final hurrah, really. I mean, everyone sort of mostly seems to go crazy for the autumn time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the, the, the best time to go foraging, I would always argue, is, is kind of right now. Because <laughs> there's just always something to be had. Um, and in a typical foraging year, I'd quite like it to last two years. So there was enough time <laughs> to get everything. Because you're always, you're always miss something. Yeah, but that's great. I think it's it's good that there's too much. Yeah, because it keeps some for nature. Because like you say, you don't pick everything when you see it. Yeah, and it just keeps some for like, oh, I missed making this thing that year. And there's always something new, you know, for me as somebody creative or somebody inquisitive to, to find. I'll never exhaust this, you know, this, um, this avenue for creativity. It, it's fascinating. Nice. So we've looked at rowan, brambles, cleavers, what else, like just on a sort of normal woodland walk, should people be looking out for? Well, for me, one of the real hidden things in Scotland, like we've, we've done our elderberry liqueur, which is, I think, you know, not enough people eat elderberries. It's one of the most abundant, easy to identify, just easy to pick. You know, you need to cook them to, to avoid any problems at all. But after that, they are so good for you. They're so tasty. We've got rose hips that we make a liqueur from. Again, super abundant, really, really tasty, full of vitamin C. It's basically a health drink. Um, and the third one that we've really gone for is the birch. So there's a little baby birch there. We've walked through the birch glade, that beautiful, um, you see the, you know, the very distinctive markings. Mm -hmm. And it's just such an abundant tree right the way around the Northern Hemisphere. And we've set about recently making a drink um, to try and honor the birch, because we love the birch. Um, and we tap the birch for its sap, but we also collect birch bark, birch twigs, birch uh, buds, catkins, new leaves, we ferment some leaves. So we, we've, we've got a drink uh, really soon, which is going to combine all of these with raw fresh sap to make a drink that's really, really quite unique, you know. It's a proper expression of a tree over its entire year's life cycle. Yeah, I'm quite excited by it. And is it a straight up drink or have you done like with, with your other drinks, is there alcohol in there? Yes, it's, it's pure alcohol, um, good. <laughs> diluted with nothing but pure fresh sap. Right. So we, we've been out um, collecting sap this year from about 40 trees in Gifford Community Woodland. They were very good and let us take some from their trees. And we got 1,200 litres of sap um, from which we've made syrups and we've made uh, this lovely new spirit. So we haven't distilled the spirit as such, but we've distilled the essence of the birch mm -hmm. into and just captured it in spirit if you like. Right. So it's fresh, raw, it's really it's really tasty actually. It's our nod to gin if you like. It's it's but it's it's pared back, it's just birch and it's beautiful. Is it quite an ancient thing though? Were people doing this years ago anyway and it's everything was fine then so I think I mean yeah the, you've got to be careful because you know people used to love picking primroses because it makes the best country wine. Um, and now you can't really find primroses right, okay. <laughs> because people went, yeah, primroses, there's so many of them. We can just keep picking, you know. Um, and I think birch was the same. They had a big problem in Russia in the 1800s because literally everybody was going out to make wine from birch. And there was so much, so much going on that they were, they were eating into the, to the forests, you know. So they had to kind of say, we're going, we're going too far. Um, but there's, there's enough that you could, you know, gently take a good portion. And I think there's enough trees that you could you could take from here and then the next year move on 
So you're always letting them recover, you know. But I think it's such a great resource that we, we just don't tap into enough, you know. Um, and it's a real, I think it's, it's, there's nothing more Scottish than, than birch trees, you know. We continued our mushroom hunt with limited success, it has to be said. But Rupert introduced me to another foraging delicacy, chicken of the woods. I'm told there are seps in here, but I've never found one. So what's, are they quite difficult to find, seps? Uh, not particularly, I mean, they like, actually one of the things they like are these, uh, you know, the Sitka spruce plantations that are all over like the borders. They go nuts in there. Um, but they're very sought after. You know, porcini, essentially. Alas, no. But this big old cherry tree, see, it's, um, it's a huge one. But this here, this white, is, um, that's the remnants of last year's chicken of the woods. So if we got this at the right time, I think sometimes it misses a year. So it lives in the ground and it'll be, the mycelium will be all through the middle of the tree. So it's literally just eating the tree now. But it, it would be these beautiful shelf brackets of sulphur yellow with a beautiful orange frill. So there's trees near me, just down the road from my flat, that have huge sounds like that just sticking off them. Could be. I mean, it'd be bright, bright sulphur yellow colour right. um, in this shelf pattern. And um, yeah, if we, we would find them when they're young and cut the edge off and then chop them up into like chunks. And you can eat like chicken. So you need to cook it. Um, some people might eat a little bit of stomach upset. But if you get them young and you cook them really well, uh, like I'll bread them and feed them to my son. He's quite fussy and he loves it. He thinks it's chicken. <laughs> um, but they're just a beautiful mushroom. And it's a bonanza when you find one, you've, you've found one. They're, Massive. They're, yeah. To go back to what we were looking at, so brambles, I pick brambles and I make bramble jam, not jelly. I tried to make jelly once and it was a bit of a faff with straining it, so I make just straight up jam. And I've used elderberries infused, stick it in with gin in a kilner jar and just leave it. All these things have loads of sugar and you've said like maybe yeah. adding loads of sugar is not the best. So is there ways for people to make simple things at home with foraged berries that aren't putting it full of sugar? I mean, I think there's a, you know, a lot of people do fruit leathers, for example. Um, I mean, it's not wrong with a bit of sugar, but uh, I think it can be a bit much. Uh, fruit leathers, you know, things like rose hips are naturally high in sugar. They've got about 10% sugar, so you can sieve the pulp um, and apples and just use that as a base. Uh, so they've got quite a lot of natural sweetness going on there anyway. Um, and yeah, just, uh, I mean, some people, they don't want to use a lot of sugar. You can use things like um, sweetwood rough or um, sweet sisley. So you can add that, you can add less sugar if you like, and they will enhance the flavour of the sugar. But there are, yeah, a lot of things, it would appear, uh, that need sugar. But this time of year, you've got the berries, you've got the nuts, you've got the fungi. You know, and, and yeah, you could just literally go on and on and on and on and on and on and on <laughs> and spend a whole lifetime doing it and never find the end of it, you know, and still always find something tomorrow that is just as amazing and makes everything as exciting as the first day. We're back now in the Buck and Birch tasting room and I'm joined by Rupert and Tom. Hi guys. Hi there. How are you doing? Thanks very much. That was a great foraging walk there. Glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, so we have some foraged kind of canopies um, that you guys have as part of your tasting here. So can we just kind of talk through them and we'll have a little tasting of maybe one of them? Yeah, I mean, these just, uh, you know, we started out as a wild dining outfit, just exploring the wilds and putting on crazy multi-course tasting menus. Um, 
before we became a drinks brand, really. So this is a pot of history, if you like, of all the best things of the Buck and Birch. Uh, some of the canopies we used to, to feed people um, and some of the things that you know, you've just seen in the forest there. Uh, we always, always started with uh, smoked venison, dandelion capers. It's beautiful. It's everything that's great. These are the little dandelion buds I was telling you about. They've got a little of honey in the middle there. Um, and in the bowl, we've got uh, a gougere that's filled with some of the seps we didn't find in the forest. Um, and we've got a cracker with some wild garlic, which you could have found in spring. Some of those uh, chanterelles. Um, yeah, it's just a little uh, example of some of the really tasty stuff that's out there that goes really well with the drinks that we're making. And for dessert here, we've got something uh, a little bit unusual, hog seed parkin. So that's hogweed that everybody knows is this evil plant, but it's super, super tasty. It's like a spice, really exotic Scottish spice. Um, so we just use that to flavor this beautiful cake. And the chocolate offering is jelly ear mushroom, which grows on elder trees. So we've soaked the mushrooms in our elder liqueur um, and covered them in chocolate and they are very unusual, but very addictive. So the hogweed, is that the same as giant hogweed? It's the same family, yeah. Um, but it's our native hogweed. Not, not the dangerous, dangerous one, no. It's only mildly dangerous if you get it wrong. But it, the shoots, the shoots in spring are very tasty, but for us, it, it really comes in its own, the spice at this time of year. Every hedgerow, every field edge is covered in, in hogweed. So which I, uh, what one would you recommend? I would always start with the gougere. But essentially that's full of uh, thyme, a bit of brandy, lots of sets. We've got um, giant puffball mushrooms in there and some of that chicken of the woods. I just think it's very, very, very tasty. Mm, really good. And the dusting on the top is a, it's a wild garlic powder. Mm -hmm. So we just powder fresh young garlic leaves and it's got that lovely meaty meatiness. Yeah, no, that's, yeah you're right, it's kind of meaty. Really, really flavoursome. Very nice. And what would you pair that with, with your liqueurs? I mean, usually we go, you know, I think something like the uh, the Amorosa goes really well. It's got that lovely savoury angle to it. Um, I think a little plate of these kind of snacks with uh, with an Amorosa spritz would just be fantastic on a, on a late summer's day. And that's your rosehip rum liqueur? Yeah. Gold medal winning. Nice. So if we just, so we've talked foraging, we've tried some um, food. How did this all start out? Like, how did you guys meet each other and how did you go from that point to this point? Well, we met many years ago uh, working at Brown's Restaurant in Edinburgh. Um, so Rupert was the head chef there. I worked front of house. Uh, so by definition, we shouldn't have got along. Um, but I was always fascinated by the, the specials and the, uh, the sort of things that he, he produced from the kitchen off the main menu, um, which for the demographic of people that came to uh, Brown's was probably quite challenging, but I used to really like selling it to them. So things like squid ink risotto and boudin noir sausages. Um, and it kind of reignited my sort of interest in, in wild foods on a very small level. And then we, we both left, um, but befriended each other on Facebook. So when Facebook first started and everyone was friending everyone. Um, and Rupert started posting lots of pictures of his wild experiments at home in his shed. And it was bottles of elderflower wine and pickles and mad salads and things. And that took me back to my childhood in Norway. Uh, I've grown up on the outskirts of Oslo and sitting in sort of blueberry meadows and sort of daydreaming there. And I happened to have a, a available venue in um, Portobello at the time. And, and I thought, right, this is worth 
doing some sort of pop-up dining experience. So dragged Rupert out um, to the pub, um, bought him a few pints to persuade him to come out of chefing retirement. Uh, and he agreed to do two of these pop-up dinners. Um, and then we got some friends together, uh, brought them to this venue in Portobello and served them up what was uh, the first ever menu. The poster actually behind you there is, um, is all of the dishes that we served on that day. Um, and we've kept that as a little memory of where it all started. Uh, and at the time, having no idea where it would take us, we were adamant we weren't going to open a restaurant, so we didn't. Uh, but we're always looking for that sort of business idea or spark that would um, allow us to do this for a living. And, and the, the, the drink is where it all started, really. So the elderberry liqueur served at the first dinner, very nearly wasn't. I kind of said, no, nah, maybe not. Rupert said, it's going on the menu. It took me ages to forage and, and prepare all these berries. So it's going out there. And actually it was the start of the show that night and was for loads of the dinners afterwards. When my next door neighbor at the time actually came running into the kitchen at the end going, what, what was that elderberry stuff? That was amazing, do you know? Um, but it took us about two years to figure out that, that that was the way forward. That could be a marketable product for us to take out there. Um, so we kind of we've incidentally arrived in the drinks industry um, through our our journey through the wilds of Scotland, really, which is uh, which is exciting. And have you found that from that point of you know your pop up dinners, people's interest in wild food and foraging has grown over the years? Definitely, I think. I think always there's always been a sort of interest to it, and I think one one of the most sort of um, enjoyable things from our perspective when we were doing the dinners was having twenty strangers sit around the table, and we'd more or less force them all to eat exactly the same thing. We didn't give prior notice to the menus, uh, so we were pushing people out their comfort zones, but they all interacted and kind of came together around this one meal of really interesting unusual ingredients and just opening their eyes to the possibilities of what you can eat that's literally right under your nose or outside your window um blew people's minds and then and i think he blew our minds as yeah well. yeah absolutely yeah and then and i think more latterly the, the sort of last 18 months with with people being out of the office and working from home and having to go out and do their exercise out in the wild i think it's it's shown people how important that is and, and um, their connection to it is much stronger now. So, Possibly for the first time ever, I've been ahead of the fashion curve. You know? <laughs> so were you, were you foraging and things when you, you mentioned that when we were out? When you were... I think it was, it was something I was introduced to as a child. It was just, I grew up in the West Highlands of Scotland and we were always introduced to picking anything that was available. So it was kind of second nature. And then I moved to the city and it, it just sat there as an idea. And then I uh, got tired of chefing and then moved to Thailand. And when I left Thailand, I thought, if I go back to Scotland, I'm going to make sure I go and examine, you know, make the time to go and examine it. And that's when I just started picking all these kind of things. And then Tom saw the value in it. Because I was at the time amassing jars of pickles and you name it, and thinking, what the hell is all this for, you know? And Tom suggested that we could put it together in his dining experience. Thought, Actually, but no, that sounds like a lot of work, you know, because I'd kind of had enough of chefing. Um, so it was, it was great actually because that first dinner said to us it's like well there is more in it it's not doesn't have to be mindless steak and chips you know and we kind of made this pact that it was what we found exciting that would go on the plate um, and thankfully everybody else tended to agree you know but it was genuinely exciting and then it just it, it just led us to 
giving up the day job and um, and finding this as a full time occupation, which is pretty mind blowing in itself. I think it's um, it's reevaluating sort of what is Scottish food as well. You know, trying to not move away from it because you know Rupert does an amazing staggis version of haggis, and but just. Yeah, showing how exotic and varied and diverse and exciting the food and the ingredients that we have on our shores and in our woods and stuff are. And for whatever reason, we've just lost connection to it. And what's really sort of encouraging from our perspective is you can see that there's a real hunger for it again. Um, and, and yeah, through our drinks as well, it's, um, you know, people are, are they're far more interested in in Sort of where the products come from, its sustainability credentials, its sort of uh, natural credentials, all these sort of things, um, which makes us much more relevant now than than ever, really. Definitely. But the neglect as well of the of the local larder has meant that you know we've flown mangoes in from Pakistan and we can take exotic fruits from the centre of Brazil, but at the moment the most exciting and the most exotic food on the planet is in Scotland for Scottish people, you know, it's because it's all undiscovered almost. So we're sitting here, we should sort of describe, um, this is your um, tasting room and you've got shelves of, looks like everything, dried stuff, pickled stuff. It's our, our wild wall of weird, we call it. <laughs> so it's pickles, ferments, there's bottles of um, rowan shoot spirit up there. So you can see, uh, looks sort of, yeah, some, yeah, something like a, a Damien Hurst formaldehyde art installation. Jars of pine pollen there, reed mace pollen. And do you know what you're going to do with it all? Not always, you know? I mean, some of the things up there are, are you know, for, for, the, for the tasting experience and some of the things are just there so that one day we'll kind of think, if only we had, well, we do, we have, some pine pollen on the on the shelf. It's 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 our kind of inspiration wall as well. And and when we get sort of bartenders or people from the professions coming in and wanting to develop stuff themselves, maybe are alongside us or collaborative projects that we're they're working on at the moment. It's just that little, you know, just to spark an idea in people's heads. Um, and it is actually as much as there's loads and loads of jars. It's a bit like um, who said somebody said it's like a cross between Willy Wonka and uh, Harry Potter's wand shop. You know. But this is only a tiny proportion of it, um, of everything. It's It's been slowly coming out of various sheds and cupboards in Rupert's house and, and ending up on our shelves here, which is exciting. But again, it just shows you how many things that are out there. But I think this is a, we were just crazy enough to imagine what's possible, you know, what would happen if we put that with that or that in there. Um, and things will move from then, eventually you'll come out with something that is 15 years old that you've left under a cupboard somewhere. And you go, actually, that's amazing, you know, and can you remember how to make it? And it kind of slowly makes its way across the room to the wall here of finished product, you know. So is that how Elder came about? Did you kind of think, oh, I want to do something with elderberry and with... Elder was literally, I've got these elderberries, are they edible? Yes, they're edible, great, what can you do with them? And it was just following all the recipes I could find and then think, well, that worked. And if we just used that, but with this and slowly but surely you come up with something, um, very very tasty and at that point you go right remember how you did that yeah and that's so we the amarosa was literally the same but with rose hips we always talk about amarosa as uh, the first ever edition of it was trampoline aged in the back of uh, rupert's garden there was a small barrel that was um he'd put it together and then we more or less forgot about it in the you know very early days and uh, it wasn't until a few years later that he handed me a cup when we were doing something else. I wasn't paying attention, didn't tell me what it was. A cup with some ice and a little sort of drizzle of this liquid. 
and I tried it and I was like, what on earth was that? And then he reminded me of what it was. It was the, the rose hip rum. And uh, so trying to recreate it, actually, we had to sort of pick the whole thing apart and I actually ended up, yeah, it was quite a, a difficult process actually. Um, but I, we, we got back to it eventually again. So, um, but yeah, trampoline aged was the original batch. And so is that, so now you've, you see, you've sort of ended up in the drink industry, that's obviously now going to be your focus. You're going to bring out more things to look foraged sort of. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're, we're you know, we've always said flavour first seasoned with spirit so for us the priority and the, the sort of the the star of the show always has to be the ingredients that go in uh, to the product so whether it's elderberries rose hips you know birch syrup um but we are we are also about to launch some more spirit focused drinks um so very excited but yeah just sort of broaden the range really because we've got these liqueurs have been the core um but we're just keen to you know make as many useful bar ingredients as possible. So we'll be bringing a lot more herbal Amaro style drinks. Um, we've got one of those in the pipeline. The spirits, you know, we have got, uh, as I was explaining earlier, the, um, the very exciting birch drink that's uh, coming out very soon. And then just some playful things, you know, we're just gonna take a play because we don't, we're not constrained by having to distill things or, do things in the way that other people feel they need to. We kind of are from a kitchen, so we can kind of cook up anything we like. Um, so we've got some rum, um, as much as we can tell you on that one. Um, and you know, some exciting kind of whiskies, if you like, you know. Uh, but it's just, just a bit of fun, really, just try and tell more of the story of, of um, what's possible. Um, We've landed in the industry by, by accident, if you like. We've not gone through the conventional route um, that most distillers and distilleries go through. So, uh, exactly like Rupert says, we're not we're not sort of bound. We don't know what the the, the constraints or the sort of the uh, the formula is, if you like. Which means we come to it with an open page and and, and ideas. And some things will work, some things won't. But um, we just have to have integrity, as you say, and it just has to be really really tasty. <laughs> you know, that's the fundamental. But people say, why is it 17%? You say, well, that's how it tasted best. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it's quite nice in a way. You're not putting yourself under any pressure. If you'd set up a distillery, then everyone would be watching to see what you're doing. But actually... And you're very limited then, yeah. I mean, maybe we'll have a distillery one day. That would be exciting. But we'd have to do very, very different spirits, you know? I think it's... Um, what, what we're finding as well is that those same places or like the more established brands uh, and and distilleries of things are now taking more note of what we're doing which is exciting so either using our products in cocktails or collaborative events or even products that will be launched off the back of it and I, and I think for us that's reassuring to know that whilst we're disruptive in the industry we are being sort of acknowledged as well rather than seen as just too crazy. Um, We'd like to be seen as crazy as well, you know. But consumers see it as well, don't they? They, you know, like we said earlier, they they are now much more educated and and wanting to ask the right questions as far as we're concerned about, you know, where the products are from, what the ingredients are. They're less interested in in the the sort of strength of alcohol, for example, um, with the the low and no ABV cocktail sort of boom that's happening at the moment. And and again, our products fit that market very well because you can dilute them or use them in low ABV cocktails, um, which is good. Uh, so obviously a highlight, and I say this sarcastically, um, was being featured on BBC Great Food Guys, which was me, although mm. it wasn't me. Um, <laughs> what did what did things like that kind of, did that kind of open you up to new audiences when it went on uh, BBC One? Uh, definitely. And I think, you know, we are, 
tiny in the drinks industry. I think for some people, the perception is we are much bigger than we are. Um, you know, having met other drinks brands and and companies, they're always amazed that we even produce our own stuff sometimes um, in, in, in-house rather than having it outsourced. But, you know, big companies have big marketing budgets. We don't have that. So we have to be creative and we also have to rely on word of mouth and also the support of exactly things like programs like that. And uh, yeah, it was, it's, that's massive for us. You know, we, we see a spike in sales whenever we get anything like that through our website. Um, even at shows and events that we were doing, I remember people coming up to me and saying, oh, I saw you, I saw you in that program. Oh, it was great, right? I've been meaning to try and get some. So yeah, absolutely. It's essential for us to, to keep growing and, and getting our brand out there. Um, so yeah, so thanks. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I should explain it was me, but it wasn't me. It was me that did all the research for all and got in all the drinks, um, but I didn't present that particular one, but it was part of the wild menu. Um, anyway, speaking of wild menu, we're here within the tasting room, we've gone foraging. Can people come and do this now with you guys? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, we started it, what, about four weeks ago, I think. Uh, so it's a tasting event. You get to come to our tasting room, sit around our lovely um, wooden table here, and uh, you get to try all of the different liqueurs. We do sampling of that and then pair them with the canopies that you can see on the table here. So they're all favourites from our dining experience. So it's, uh, as Rupert says, a little potted history of the Bucking Birch dining experience, but... Uh, also introducing the drinks and, and how you how to enjoy them uh, at home as well. And are you going to do any pop-up dining again or is that kind of gone? I think I think one day, yeah, definitely. We always say we're never doing any ever again, which means inevitably we will at some point do yeah. some. We said we'll never open a restaurant, so you should wait for the restaurant as well. <laughs> yeah. we, we always get asked, you know, quite often, and I think even more so now, we're getting other brands and clients asking us to do them. So, you know, if it fits... Um, I think it's been very exciting. We've had to kind of gear up to get almost international sales and distribution and so many things like setting this place up. That's kind of taken all of our time. Um, but we are very, very, very keen to get out and engage with the public. Um, and I think for us, the, set, the absolute setting of these drinks is in that dinner. Yeah. You know, that, that's what we love doing most. Um, so we will have to at some point. It's where they were born, I think. And, and they definitely, they pair with food the idea for all our drinks it's not a sort of you know we're not creating session drinks as such it's more about getting together um you know either with family or friends and sit around and have good food good drink and good discussion and that's as much as it you know we, we don't need people to but i do think it would be great to to really you know we always had loads of ideas that we didn't have the money or the time or the resource to put into action um, so it would be great, you know, because we never did the dinners for money. It was never supposed to be about money. It was that idea of getting 20 people around a table and just, it's magic, you know. So I think it would, it would be fantastic to be able to say we're going to have a dinner and hide the tickets in the forest or something and have people go on a treasure hunt, you know. And, um, and I, I, whoever finds them is, is the, lucky, the lucky winner. A bit Willy Wonka, you know. And I think that, that sort of thing we could see happening. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, and then collaborating as well with other foragers. You know, there's a, a real sort of upsurge in, in foraging and foraging events all around the place, uh, you know, Scotland and England and wherever. And Rupert in particular knows the, the whole network. So working alongside them to do some really interesting collaborative events is, is definitely something. That's I think it'd be done. good to hire like some new young talent. I'm, I'm getting on in years, you know. <laughs> all those long days in the kitchen. But it would be really exciting for me to get somebody who wanted to learn all these things um, 
and have almost like a good apprentice. So you could, you know, they've got the energy, um, and that would be really exciting as well. Because it it feels like a shame that we don't do more of it. Yeah, definitely. And I do feel like from a consumer's point of view, I mean, this was years ago now, and I don't know if you guys had anything to do with it. There was Dram and Smoke at the festival. They did a kind of pop-up mm. forage. Yeah, that was quite success, wasn't it? Yeah, and they didn't. They think they did it twice and then didn't come back. And then um, Chef Barry Bryson in Edinburgh, he just did a prolonged series at Jupiter Artland, and it was outside, and it was it yeah. looked amazing. And I think people really, I mean, that sold out. So people are coming back round to the idea of something a bit different and experience as well as you know, yeah. no it's good to see it is good so you should do it <laughs> yeah yeah I mean I think as, as Rupert said we've, we've spent the last uh, five years sort of in the woods if you like immersing ourselves there we have lots of ideas we have lots of delicious uh, recipes drinks we've just forgotten to tell everybody about it <laughs> so you know that is that, you know, any 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 way that we can share and, and have other people help share those ideas, um, because the response from the tasting so far has been amazing. You know, people turn up on a on an industrial estate in McMerry, um, and then turn up at our front door, and we've got trees and plants and stuff all grown about, and then walk into it's like through the the wardrobe in Narnia. You know, you walk in through the door, and suddenly you're in this sort of birch forest bar. Um, and, and so people's expectations are one thing and then they're kind of blown away by what they actually experience um, which is great for us that's exactly what we want to happen um, and they leave happy and feeling as though they've, they've learnt something as well and, and been inspired so we want more people to come and visit us Yeah. and what's the significance of the name if anything? Buck and Birch um, so the first ever dinner um, we served uh, venison and hare so that's the buck bit and then we had prolonged or we delayed doing the dinner actually so we could have fresh birch sap um, at the beginning of the meal as a little palate cleanser um, it's just to put off the inevitable amount of hard work as well there was that, yeah but I mean so that's that's really where the name came from um, and then birch has been such an integral part of everything that we do venison obviously as well but we always start with the buck you know the venison stick was the very first thing we ever served and the, the birch water and it's all we always finished with a caramel made from birch syrup so it was kind of it's always been the way you know mm. uh, I don't even know who called it the Buck and Birch. Actually. It's my wife. <laughs> yeah, one time she didn't call me some expletive. You know, <laughs> she went for that. Um, and people always ask as well, who's Buck and who's Birch? But we haven't we haven't fought that out yet, so uh, so don't know. The final bit of the podcast, there's um, a quick fire round, which is all about food, and there's also desert island drinks. Usually, sometimes drams, but let's say drinks. So, question to both of you: If you could only take three drinks onto a desert island, what would they be and why? I would take Elder, Amarosa, and Anna with me because <laughs> they're like my kids. Okay, if you couldn't take any of your own drinks, <laughs> I'm hopeless with these things. Yeah. Do they have to be alcohol? Sorry, or can it be? It can be anything. Well, everyone always usually picks alcohol though, which yeah. is interesting. I can re-answer it, but um, it's a good question actually. I'd take a, a, a nice bottle of rum. Rum's my favourite spirit. And then I'd probably need some ginger beer for that as well. So that's two gone, isn't it? And then some birch sap, actually. Just a, a large vat of birch sap would be great. Yeah, there's always nice room for a, a nice cold beer in life, I think. And, uh, right, so the quick fire round is called My Life in Food. Um, and just to answer the first thing that comes into your head. So I'll go one, then the other. Okay. Um, so whenever I'm hungry, I think of... Chips. Comfort food for me is... Cheese sandwiches. My favourite childhood dessert is... 
trifle. My food heaven is cheese sandwiches. <laughs> and my food hell is. Oh, I don't really have one. Uh, celery. Uh, well, thank you very much. So we're just going to tuck into the rest of these snacks. I'm looking forward to yeah. the cake. You want to try the uh, chocolate mushroom as well. Thanks to Rupert and Tom, and thanks to you for listening to this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe. I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to going out foraging while walking with my dog. Scran is a laudable podcast that's hosted and co-produced by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton. Music